Welcome to the Stir Crazy Podcast. I am Jamie Schler. I'm an award-winning blogger and freelance writer specializing in food and culture with bylines in the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, Fine Cooking, and the Art of Eating, among other publications. I'm the author of the cookbook Orange Appeal and the e-cookbook Isolation Baking. I'm an American living in France where I own a hotel and make lots and lots of jam. So, of course, I decided it was now time to become a podcaster. And while a food podcast was the natural and obvious choice for me, I wanted to do something different, something out of the ordinary. Stir Crazy is a new concept in food podcasts. My guests are not food professionals, but rather I'll be talking food with the most intriguing people who you least expect to talk about food, including actors, politicians, pundits, spies, writers, musicians, activists, journalists, and writers, to give you a few examples. To paraphrase the great French gastronome Briat Savarin, tell me what you eat and how you cook, and I'll tell you what you are. When it comes to food, travel, culture, and family, my guests have the most fascinating stories and unexpected experiences and insights. But there is a bonus. I will also be baking with each of my guests, which can really get crazy. Stir Crazy Podcast is divided into two segments— the first will be video of our baking session to be shared on the Stir Crazy website and on YouTube. The second half will be the more traditional sit-down chat, which you'll be able to find on your favorite podcast platform, although seeing as who my guests are, it's not going to really be very traditional. Just a note on production. As this is a brand new podcast format recorded over Zoom, there may be bumps and glitches in our first few episodes, but I and my team are learning as we go, smoothing things out and getting better and better. So join the fun, watch, listen to, follow, subscribe to, share, and savor Stir Crazy Podcast. The great French gastronome Briat Savarin once said, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. I'm Jamie Schler. Welcome to Stir Crazy, where I will be talking food with the most intriguing people who you least expect to talk about food. My guest today is Malcolm Nance. Malcolm is a former United States Navy Senior Chief Petty Officer specializing in naval cryptology as well as a counterterrorism and intelligence expert. He has more than 30 years of combat and field experience in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, the Balkans, and Africa. He's the author of 10 books, including four times on the New York Times bestseller list. His books include The Plot to Hack America, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, The Plot to Betray America. As a former spy, he's a member of the Board of Advisors at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., which I just wanted to mention here because I think it's super cool. He's a regular MSNBC contributor and frequent guest on television and podcasts as an intelligence and terrorism analyst and expert on information warfare. And if you follow him on Twitter at Malcolm Dance, you also know he's one of the smartest and most well-informed voices, but he's also very funny and very nice. And first, let me tell your audience a little bit about my wife. My wife is named Marise Belliveau-Nance, and she's a Quebecois, French-Canadian, from Montreal. She's the great love of my life. Unfortunately, uh, about four and a half years ago, she was diagnosed with uh, stage four ovarian cancer. And two years ago, she passed away. Needless to say, on myself and my kids, who are all raised in Quebec, 
they're all francophones, including my two dogs. They only speak French. Um, and, uh, and better than Which me. Which means that you have to speak French in order to communicate with them. I do. I do. You know, I know all the good commands, you know, like assi and va faire la pipi. So <laughs> <laughs> these are all the important things. I had a wonderful marriage, 17 years together with my wife, who, who I always said I wanted to marry someone who hated my job. And even though you gave me a nice flowery entrance, my job was pretty simply described as a spy. And, you know, as you know, I'm on the board of the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm very well known for espionage and intelligence and discussing matters like that. So, yeah, she didn't like my job, but I eventually brought her into my work. But she was a great chef. Also, she was really good. And when we bought this house, we bought this giant mansion, or as you would call it, a maison de maître, that was built in 1850. It was a ruin, a ruin. It was going to collapse in four places. And while we were living in Abu Dhabi, she said, let's find our retirement home. So I came out, I looked at this place. I was like, this is a disaster. But she said, come on, we'll build it into our home you know, our retirement. Yeah. And 13 years later, we're still doing maintenance. You know, I'm not a New York Times international best-selling author. I'm chief of maintenance <laughs> and repair. And in my part-time, I'm an international pundit on intelligence and an author for the New York Times. And in my full-time job, I'm either the, you know, chef de jardin or, you know, uh, or chief of maintenance in the house. So that's what I do. But the house is 10,493 square feet, four stories. <laughs> and at the time, it had rooms for eight maids in the attic, which is wow. now my daughter's separate apartment, three chefs, a <gasps> butler, and a coachman down in the basement. And the basement what? has three wings. It has an east wing prep room, a main hall, and a giant cook room, which is now my man cave. <laughs> so what's really funny is, is that the house had 12 bedrooms just for children. Because they were like, well, this is the 1850s. You better go have 12 kids, you know? Yeah. And they did. They had 10 children. Six died in the house. But, so, you know who lived oh, in the house? Oh, we know the whole history of the house. Wow. Uh, but the name of the house at the time was called Brightside. I jokingly say to people, I say, this house is so big, it has a name. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, the acreage we're on in the house on this lot is called Reef Point. Hmm. And Reef Point is a nautical term. Turns out the owner of the house was a man named Francis Horatio Stott. His father is the founder of the village, Stottville. And he was a soldier in the War of 1812 who was captured, got released, and started wool mills. And as a message to his wayward son, who became a sailor like me, and who was the first mate of the clipper ship Sea Witch, the father built this giant mansion on a hill and told his son, you're finished with sailing to Shanghai. This is your house. Go have 12 kids, fill it up, <laughs> and come take over the factories with his brother who had an equal size house. So Francis Stott did that, had 10 kids, and really filled this house up. So we named it Reef Point 
because reef point is a sailing term for when you go into a hurricane or a storm, a severe storm, if you leave your sails down in full, it will just tear the sails apart and rip your mast off. So they have these little strips that hang down and you bring your sails about a third or halfway up and you tie them off with these little things called reefs. And reef point is a nautical term for a safety device in a storm. Oh. So this house is our reef point. And ironically, the Naval Academy gives you a little book when you go through it called Reef Points. <laughs> They're all the little things you need to know. So this is our point of safety in a storm. And believe me, we've had some storms. And it's yeah. a beautiful mansion. It's, you know, we have how many grand rooms? We have a dining room with a table that seats 14. It's really a, a beautiful, it's an Italianate style home, but it's an Edwardian interior, which we had to build out everything. It was a disaster. We had to remove 60 tons so, of I plaster and lathing that had collapsed. So everything so in this house that is not wood and glass has been replaced. All the walls, so you all the electricity, all the heating, everything, the lighting. But we have oh, yeah. 41 doors, 52 windows. It's not small. <laughs> At least you don't live in a time where there's a window tax. Yeah. So my wife <laughs> so I've, needed... I have a question yeah, yeah, we, because I know you have a kitchen, yes. but you also have like a pantry. A butler's or pantry, a, yeah. Right, where Marise did a lot of her cooking. Well, that her preparation. Well, actually, all her prep. The butler's pantry is more of our library, and because she's Quebecois, they have an old table from you know de la campagne, you know, from out in the country. That's made of you know the seats are made of moose nerves, <laughs> moose sinew. It's really interesting, but that's like <laughs> our breakfast room and all of our glassware, kitchenware our fine glasses in there. So that's the butler's pantry. The kitchen itself, we got it because there was no kitchen up in the main house. And so we had to take down the walls for two bedrooms and a hallway to create a kitchen. And Amazing. Yeah, and so the room I'm in now, which you can't see all of it, but it has some amazing storage because my wife is from Montreal, and she was in a blizzard for three weeks with no power and no food, with three kids and a husband, and she said, we're going to outfit this house to have six months food. <laughs> so I thought she was joking. <laughs> so we have pantry space, all this custom cabinetry. I think we keep about three months food in the house at all times. But we also have this magnificent wood stove in the back that's from Boston that was built in 1892, which is a wood stove that we can actually heat the entire east wing of this house using this wood stove. Here, oh. I'll show you. And it's huge. You can bake in it. Wow. And we go through wood like crazy in winter on that wood stove. And it changes the quality of the heat and everything in this house. And the first day that my wife saw it, it was a gift. We were living in Abu Dhabi. And the first time she came back and used the stove, we had a blizzard. And this side of the house had no power, no heat, this wing. And when I came in, I had only gotten that stove up to 200 degrees, right? I mean, it's, it, it literally weighs like 800 pounds. She had it pegged out past 500 degrees. 
and was cooking hot chocolate and food and eggs and things on top of it. And I was like, I've been working on that stove for months. How did you get it past 200 degrees? And so, you know, she's Quebecois, so she has a big, funny French accent. She says, because I am from Quebec. <laughs> we know how to use the wood stove. <laughs> so she and she was in her happy place in this kitchen. No power, no heat, just, oh, just a wood stove. And she's throwing logs into it made dinner for everyone on this huge stove. She, she basically proved that what we Americans think of Canadians is all true. <laughs> oh, we. <laughs> Look, these people, you know, they're like Black Jack Chirac, right? They're Chirac. They're these, these characters. And, you know, you live in France. So I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Canadian TV shows on, like, TV Do or, or TV Sank or something. They subtitle them. <laughs> Because Quebecois French, they do. Yeah, Quebecois French is not French. Oh, oh my God! It it stopped developing in 1762 after the Treaty of Paris when they gave Canada to the English. Their French is archaic, and their curse words, their their obscenities are laughable. I remember the first time that I came across a Quebecois. TV comedy series, and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun, and I turned it on, and it was subtitled, oh and I God. tried to listen and understand without the subtitles. It was impossible. Was it? Impossible. Was it La Tite V? I don't remember. It was... Like Hillbillies? Was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is Canada's national show, La Petite V, and it doesn't mean the little life. It means low lives. <laughs> oh, les petites vies. Oh. And they talk like this. Oh, funny. Bonjour, ma. Qu'est-ce que t'as fait? Oh, pa, papa. <laughs> J'ai fait la sirop de rab, eh? <laughs> and they talk like that for real. <laughs> you need subtitles. And my favorite part, I know we're not on, we're talking about the kitchen, and my wife is literally laughing at me from heaven right now. Because <laughs> the first time I was with the kids and she had said something in the car, and sh the kids thought it was a bad word. And I thought, well, wait, wait, what did I hear? And I, you know, normally I had studied the French naughty words, right? La merde, oh, putain, you know, whatever. And she had said, Christ the Tabernacle, Christ of the Tabernacle. And in Montreal, that is like MF, right? That's like Mother Effer. And I'm like, wait, 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 stop. That's a dirty word? I said, what are the other dirty words? My daughter's here, Nadia, she's from... Uh, what's another word, some other bad words well, in Quebecois? I, I have to tell you that there was a word that I used that I learned from my husband, who's French, and I used it many years, assuming that I understood what I was saying. And after about 10 years of being married to me, he said, you really need to stop using that word around my parents. And I said, why? And he said, because it's not very polite. I'm like, you waited 10 years to tell me that? I don't even want to know what the word was. No, no, no. <laughs> the, the word is bordel, which I always thought meant la maison, oh, the bordel, the, the house bordel. is a mess. Yeah, the house is, is a mess, right? Yeah, bordel. Comme un bordel. But, well, that's funny. Well, in Quebecois, all of the bad words are church words. Nadia, what's another word? Uh, you have Christ de Tabernac and... Uh, esti de merde, esti de... Esti de quoi? Esti de merde. 
No, no, that's a normal one. One of the church ones. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll come okay, across wait, them we... as we cook, believe me. But I laughed and laughed and laughed. And my kids are going, oh my God, you're saying terrible words. And I'm like, you're saying Christ of the tabernacle. And then they have crazy, crazy words that only mean something in the 17th century. You know, their word for surprise. Do you know when you say, oh, oh my God, or surprise. Do you know what word they use? Bato. And I'm going, boat? <laughs> because in the 18th century, 17th century, the biggest surprise you could have is a ship coming from France <laughs> down the Saint Laurent. And everybody would go, bateau, bateau. And I'm like, this is crazy language. <laughs> okay, we should cook. Because we'll just stand here and laugh all day. And my, okay, my let's Canadian get, let's get listeners our... will be sending letters. I know. I know. <laughs> my first and last episode of Stir Crazy. <laughs> Before sitting down together to talk, Malcolm and I baked. Yes, we did. Together we recreated his wife's favorite and much-loved cherry pie, which we call La Tarte Marise, and you definitely, definitely do not want to miss Malcolm baking his very first pie. It was crazy fabulous. You can watch it over at our website, stircrazypodcast.com, or on the Stir Crazy Podcast channel on YouTube. And please make sure you subscribe share, and tell all your friends about it. Now on to the podcast. So are you comfortable? Because now I want to ask you a couple questions. I listened to you, like I said, on Daniel Lilchuk's classical music podcast, Talking Beats, which I loved the interview, but I've fallen in love with the podcast. I learned a couple things about you. One is that you played flute and piccolo in your high school marching band. Yeah, and the girls' orchestra. <laughs> Only guy. You, really? Yeah. How did that happen? Because I figured out there were they a needed lot a of pic- girls in the orchestra. <laughs> yeah. And guys were and like, so you s- man, what a wimp. I was like, you guys are aware I'm the only man amongst 80 people. How come they let you in? Because they needed a flute player? They needed a flute and piccolo player, especially piccolo. Oh, wow. You are clever. No wonder you became a spy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not stupid. So the other thing that I learned about you is that you grew up in Philadelphia, and you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I did. Yes, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And in fact, the more I thought about it, I'm writing my memoirs now, which is going to come out late next year. And the title of the memoir is Thinker, Sailor, Black Man, Spy. And I start off with one of the stories where I found a newspaper scrap that was in Hebrew. And I wanted to know what it said, so I took it to the library. And I found a book of the Hebrew alphabet. And I broke it out. But I learned a couple of very valuable lessons. One, all codes break out into a foreign language. (laughs) And number two, Hebrew is written from right to left, not left to right. So when the librarian who was Jewish pointed that out to me, it broke out in nice, perfect, clean Yiddish, which is a completely different language than Hebrew. It's funky German. And it's yep. just written in Hebrew for the Jewish community. So I learned valuable lessons there, especially the one that you have to know foreign languages. And I became fascinated with foreign languages from that point. And that's where I learned first Spanish, 
French, uh, Latin, and then when I went into the military, oh, I also studied Russian and Chinese on weekends. In Philadelphia, they used to have free language programs at South Philly High School. And I took Cantonese Chinese, not Mandarin, because that's the language of Taiwan, and uh, Russian. And then when I went in the military, and they found out that I could speak languages, they were like, oh, you're not going to fly an anti-submarine helicopter. You're going into intelligence. You're going to Defense Language Institute. And I went there, and I learned Arabic. And the school is like 70 weeks long. It is not short. High-intensity Arabic all day, all night. You dream in Arabic. They give you like two or 300 oh. words per night to memorize. And I went through Defense Language Institute and then went to our super secret code-breaking school and went out in the field and had a bizarrely successful career. Amazing. (laughs) I went back and I listened to that part again. And to quote you, you said, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and it stoked my interest in other cultures. Now, knowing that you grew up in Philadelphia, which is a food city, I went to school in Philly. There's a lot of cultural groups. You know, there's Italian neighborhood, there's a Scottish neighborhood. And so I'm wondering, as a kid, did you search out their food? Did you search out their food cultures? Well, let me tell you something. The deli culture was very easy because that was all over my neighborhood. And a lot of very old Jewish people. So if you wanted to eat, you had to go to a Jewish deli. Done. And I mean, really nice ones. But look, in Philadelphia in the 1960s, 1970s, the Italian neighborhoods were not friendly to black people. And I'll I'll be honest with you, you know, they have Little Italy in Philadelphia, which now is becoming more Vietnamese than it is Italian. I never in my entire life went there out of fear of being attacked. And it was a very valid fear. They did not like black people coming into that neighborhood. And then I didn't go there until... I went with my wife when she got a job there about six years ago. And we went there and we suddenly realized there were like maybe 10 shops that were all still old school Italian. The Italian market was quickly being displaced by Vietnamese and other people who could sustain Hmm. those markets. And I was quite surprised. Where was the Scottish neighborhood? (laughs) I I mean, in the main line, though, the main line is where I learned to like pate when I was in high school. I lived in Overbrook near St. Joseph's University, and I would ride through Marion and go up to, like, Narberth and out the main line. And and they had some nice food there. And I, I went to a gourmet market, and I saw pate, and I said, you know, I'd like to try that. But interestingly, I have never had pate that good. They had a black peppercorn pate. And it was really sharp with the peppercorns, and I love it. Everything else, that's stuff I get in France. Foie gras and (laughs) dull-ass pate. It was never as good as that black peppercorn. So how old were you when you discovered pate? Fifteen. Because I used to watch a TV show called Big Blue Marble, and I loved that show. I adored it. And it was about kids from all around the world and how we're all the same. You just live in these different cultures. And so that's where I learned the word pate. And it just made me fascinated, very curious to learn other cultures. I'm still doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. One of these days, I'm, well, I'm, I'm vying for a TV show where, you know, I will be the first black travel host that takes you around the world, you know, and we'll talk about geopolitics, food, and bars. <laughs> well, 
that's one angle no one's really cornered yet. You know, Anthony Bourdain did not go to bars all the time. So I had a discussion with my manager who was trying to get me to do a TV show. And I, I came up with this idea. I said, well, you know, everyone goes out there. You've got, you know, Bourdain. You have Stanley Tucci, who has that show. Stanley Tucci's Italy. Love that show. I lived in Italy for a while. I almost married an Italian. And uh, that was a really, really great show. But what was interesting about it was that he really goes deep into the food. But, you know, in a little bit of the travel. And I thought, you know, there's a lot more discussions that can happen out there. You know, I mean, there's you have the rise of the far right in Italy. You have, you know, all these things. And I didn't see any limoncella. <laughs> you know, he touched on wines and all those things. And I just thought, there's a lot of stuff you can do. It's always history, politics, people, food, and then the, the tite bois, you know, your little drink at the end of the day. So I'm going to corner that market one of these days. And my perspective is unique, was a spy. So, <laughs> you know, and a black one at that. And I learned a lot of things, you know. Blacks had been in the Mediterranean area forever, you know, legionnaires were black who came from, you know, they were mercenaries or who joined the Roman legions and all these places. Very interesting. You can go into Germany and look at some of the medieval paintings on the walls of buildings and see blacks who were, you know, I mean, it's not that far from Germany to North Africa. So no one talks about these things. Okay, so... You went to the Navy yes. and you lived in a lot of places. Some of those places you were in combat. So it was a war zone in the Balkans, I think. Yeah. But did you live anywhere and work anywhere that you weren't in a war zone? I mean, that you could go out and explore. Oh. and. Yeah, I lived in a bunch of places <laughs> other than Laurel, Maryland, right? Yeah, <laughs> I lived in Spain. For eight years, wow, um, and in two separate four-year stints, and that was really where I lived. And then I would go from there, deploy from there, and operate in other parts of the Mediterranean. So my house, my apartment was in a small village called Rota, Spain, where there's a, a Spanish naval base that the U.S. Navy is on, and we lived there. A tiny, tiny little village. It really isn't famous for anything. Right? <laughs> it was one of the southern villages that during the Reconquista, right, where the Catholic kings came down and they attacked a garrison there, a Muslim garrison there, and they broke it, right? And the name of the town, Rota, means broken. That's where I lived in Rota, Spain. And of course, you could go around and that was, you know, at deep Andalusia. We lived near Sherry country in the town of Jerez. Wow. The big city nearby was the city of Cadiz, the seaport. And to the north of us, only about 45 minutes to an hour was uh, Sevilla or Seville, as Rubes call it, right? <laughs> But Sevilla, Spain, which was great. That's a really big city. But we lived in a small Spanish resort that was empty about 80% of the year. And then in May, from May to September, every Spanish person from Sevilla descended onto Rota. No Western tourists whatsoever, just Spanish and these are people who don't understand that I have to work during the daytime. So they get up at night and they start eating at 11 at night. 
right? And they go out to restaurants and then they're awake until like four in the morning, you know, with little kids playing soccer, you know, and screaming at three and four in the morning while I'm trying to sleep. So that was a great cultural awakening. And it was, I think, the first time I really lived fully immersed in a foreign culture was when I was in Spain. And you got to know the rhythm of the country, of, of the village that we were living in. Uh, you know, the old guys would come in and, you know, they'd start drinking Fino Tinto, you know, these really horrible, terrifyingly dry local wines that are recipes that are hundreds years old that taste like hell and you know drinking it by the thimble full and then you knew that you know they would start you know coming in around 3 30 and then four o'clock you would be in the cafe and all the kids would come from school the siesta would break and the cafes would just fill with everybody and you would have a window seat that was wonderful and then you go out you have your tapas all your different types of tapas where I really learned to love calamari because that was one of the main types of tapas mm -hmm. and there's horrible little salt fish that Rhoda was famous for, you know, a version of sardine. And, you know, you learn to eat that stuff. And you're like, oh, this isn't actually bad. And Cruz Campo beer. But we really lived there. And the funny part was the, uh, the rest of the year, we're Los Americanos, right? You're the Americans. And they don't pay any attention to you and they sort of ignore you. Until summertime, when all the Savianos, you know, the people from Sevilla would descend on there. The village would go from 6,000 people to 100,000. Oh, my God. Because all of the apartment blocks are empty. All the villas are empty, you know. This is their summer places. And then the old guys would look at you and they go, hey, neighbor, you're one of us, not one of those Savianos. Oh. You know, who come here and, you know, dance Savianas all night. You're like us. You're stuck here. And so that was a very interesting cultural interjection, you know, to where we were became locals during the summer. But I learned a lot there. I learned that not everyone does disco dancing. <laughs> because in the middle of a disco, what you would call flamenco music or what they call Savianas music would start coming on. And boom, everyone knows the traditional flamenco style Savianas dance and the dance floor would empty of Americans and fill with the Rotenios who would be there. That was fascinating. If you were an American that learned how to do Savianas, you were in. So, but from there, I, I went many places and I lived in other places. I lived in Italy where I learned Italian. I where almost married someone from Italy. Oh, yeah. a bunch of places. In uh, Catania, Sicily, which is a real food place. Oh, <laughs> Catania, Sicily. I lived in Catania, Sicily. Oh, wow. And that was a real food place. I really learned to love food there. First off, let's be honest, everybody. I know you live in, you know, France, but the Italians, they've got it down. Okay, when it comes to eating food, they're the real gastronomes of the world because they don't get up from a table for like five hours. You know, it's a cultural event to eat in Italy. In you France, know, it's a bourgeois event, right? It's a real, hmm, you know. You know that I lived in Italy for seven years. No, where did you live? We lived in Milan. Oh, oh that's sort of she-she. 
And we lived, <laughs> well, the last two years we were there, we moved outside of Milan, like 20 minutes by car, and we lived in the middle of fields. Oh, oh that's nice. And the kids yeah, went you're out of the cities. School. But you're right. You're Italy, is, Italy is fantastic for food. At least it was when we lived there. I mean, it was oh, fantastic. Yeah. The best place to eat. So, and you cook. know, I, I became sort of a Sicilian food Nazi because down there, if you want to eat, our cafeterias on base were not McDonald's. It was cafeterias run by Sicilians who were cooking for us. And that's where I learned like snack time, they have this food called an arancini, which is a rice pyramid. Arancini, which is deep fried really quickly, but the center is like a pizza. It's it's mozzarella and, and stuff like that. Never seen an arancini outside of Sicily that was decent. I mean, theirs were giant four inch high pyramids of rice and you could take them cold and they were great. And that's what they sold at the snack bar. Another Italian meal or Italian dish that is ruined in America, ruined is uh, bruschetta, you know, which is the little circle of bread, which is toasted. And then they put in olive oil and tomato and basil and all this stuff. A lot of garlic in Sicily, right? They're mafiosos. So they're all the garlic. And they, <laughs> And they put it on the bread and it's it's warmed and it's really a meal. It's a little toasty, you know, and I had that here recently. And all they did was dice tomato and put it on a piece of hard toast. And I was like, this is disgusting. And and I, I and their bruschettas are meals. Right. Yeah. These things you order in a snack tray. There's no such thing as a snack in Sicily. So I lived there. I lived in uh, Naples, where I explored Naples a lot. I've been to all the islands off there, Capri, Ostia, all these places. Herculaneum, of course, everybody goes there. Where I also learned something interesting about the Italians. There was an old bum sitting at the train station to Herculaneum, which is where, um, of course, Pompeii is. But the worst bum in Italy was one of the best dressed guys I'd seen. They have the best style, right? I've always tried to emulate the Italians in my style. Uh, but that was really an amazing experience. And I lived in La Maddalena in Sardinia, where I would pick up my submarine missions because we have a submarine base there. That's a different country. That's like, that's like you know, Corsica. You know, it's a different world. Yeah. And of course, I had an Italian girlfriend who was from Treviso. And so that's near Venice. And so she, she lived in a house and apartment in Yezolo. So we were in Venice all the time. And then she's Northern Italian, right? Blonde, blue-eyed, hates Sicilians, <laughs> you know? And this is where I learned that Italians actually say, they don't say Mamma Mia. They say Madonna. Madonna. <laughs> Madonna. <laughs> you know, you know, it's Siciliano. You know, she, she just could not understand Sicily. But I also learned there one of my favorite TV shows in the world that I just adore. I adore this show. And that's Inspettore Maltobano. Maltobano <laughs> is just the baddest ass detective show in the world, right? It's got food. It's got three categories of hot women. <laughs> you know, the young, the intermediate cougar, and the old lady who looks really good in her 70s, right? Here's what I loved about Italy. When I was there, I worked in a millinery studio. And oh, um, I yeah, I learned how to be, I became a milliner. And 
The women in the studio were older. In fact, they were a little past retirement, but they stayed there. They had started working for this woman's grandmother when she was making hats for the Queen of Italy, you know. And everybody would show up for work in the morning and they would spend the first half hour of work taking turns on the telephone because it was before cell phones, taking turns on the phone, calling their sister, their sister-in-law and their daughters to plan lunch. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. It's like, I'm amazed they all didn't go to lunch together. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that was it. And one time one of them said to me, they said, what are you making for dinner tonight when you go home? I said, I think I'm just going to make a big salad. And they all looked at me and said, you feed your husband salad for a meal and he's going to leave you. Yeah, that's right. Like that's right. you need a you need the pasta course, you need the the main course, the meat. The they were very. Expensive. I learned one thing living in Italy, uh, having an Italian girlfriend. I learned to properly make pasta and, of course, salt it. They don't do that here in the United States. You know, they don't salt their spaghetti when they put it in the pot. You know, and they're like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> like. Whoa, is this the way it's done? And they're like, yes, that's the way it's done, you idiot. But yeah, I lived all over Italy. I traveled all over Italy. I learned all the dirty words. I I did a lot of missions in and out of Italy, especially when I went to the Balkans. Yeah, I learned to appreciate, I mean, I've been to some small places in Italy where I pop up with a submarine and then I get off, (laughs) you know, and it's just a, a small small tugboat that's never seen a submarine you know come in there it's like and then it's just like well i've got to wait four hours for a van to come and get me so it's lunchtime. and over there lunch takes about four hours so i i had a grand old time in italy when we lived there we lived there in the 90s and my husband had a theory that if you want to find a really good restaurant for lunch with authentic cuisine with women in the kitchen older mamas in the kitchen, you find out where the gendarme, where the carabinieri have lunch. And you wait and you drive around town until a place you're just visiting for the day. You drive around town until you find their cars parked in front of a restaurant and you go in the restaurant. And that's where you look in the kitchen and it's all these older grandmas known as in the in the kitchen. Right, right. Making really good food. It always worked. Wow. Yeah. I was looking for taxi drivers. The taxi drivers. <laughs> you know, wherever they went, if it was a dive, it was a good dive. Yeah. And and I it's also the place I learned to really love Roberto Benini <laughs> before he did a Life is Beautiful. So Italy's a fantastic place. And that's why I love that TV show Standing Tucci's Italy. But there's a lot left out of that in terms of the food as well. Same thing with France. You know, when I go to France, I don't go to France as a tourist. I go to France as a user, (laughs) okay? Because I would transit Charles de Gaulle a lot on some of these missions that I was doing. And when you would come out of the Middle East, France was the hub as opposed to London. Now it would be London. But Paris was the hub back in those days. And, you know, my first check-in was, you know, with my liaison at the American Embassy. You know, my counterintelligence check-in. You know, where you followed, did anybody search your room, da 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 And I had a good friend who was assigned in the American Embassy. He's the guy that taught me how to buy shirts with cuffs. And the same shop is right there, 10 doors down from the American Embassy, where I got my first decent shirt. 
sure. Uh, and I always stay now. I stay at the Westin Plus Vendome. Here's the funny part about being Malcolm Nance, all right? I don't think I'm anybody. When you're recognized by Americans sitting, having a coffee in Rue de Rivoli, <laughs> right? Just sitting there going out saying, you know what? I need a double espresso. And I sit down and you have a conga line of Americans who are just going to the gift shops. Malcolm mm. Nance, Malcolm Nance. I'm like, okay, this is bizarre. My wife, of course, died laughing every time. Or if she would see them, like, indicating to me, and she would quietly behind my back go, yeah, that's him. And they go, are you Malcolm Nance? And she'd go, yes, he is. This is him. And it was just so funny. And she would kiss me and say, I'm proud of you. And I'm like, this Aww. is weird. But... It just, I mean, I had so much exposure on MSNBC in either terrorist attacks like the Bataclan attack mm. that for Americans, they know who I am. That's freaky. So uh, yeah. I want to talk to you now. You know, you'll have to come back another time and talk about all the other travels sure. you've done. But okay, what did you do these last couple of years? Your wife passed away, which mm. left you with your, you have more than just your daughter. You have three well, kids. yeah, my youngest daughter is living with me. My oldest is a, my son. He's living in Philadelphia. He's an archaeologist, but he works at an antiquities auction house. Wow. Yeah, my middle daughter is having living her own life in Northern Virginia. She has three kids and a boyfriend. And my youngest daughter lives here with me. She's my executive assistant and is becoming an author of her own right. She's writing about the crazy She's got a way more interesting life than I do in some respects. You know, they're, they're adopted. They came into a family, you know, and helped create what I call this multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultured, multi-gendered, uh, multi-species, all-American family. <laughs> so first off, let me say this to your listeners. If you're married, and you love your spouse. You don't know what time you have, how much time you have. You don't. And you need to give your 100% while you're there. I tell people, a guy stopped me on the street. He was from Washington, D.C. last week. And I said, is this your wife? I go, yeah. I go, does he serve you coffee every morning in bed? She goes, he does. I says, all right, you're meeting your goals there. And I said, okay, you two, more video of you two together just talking. You will regret it if you don't. My wife's loss was devastating. You know, ovarian cancer, there's no race for the cures because there really almost is no cure. You generally find out it's stage four plus. And, you know, they have mitigations and things that they're trying now that are experimental, but it hit us all hard, very hard. But, you know, she actually wrote to a forum, a cancer forum that I found out much later. I found her password and I went into it and they ask each other questions. They call themselves Teal Sisters. And one of the questions they ask is, will your spouse be devastated? And she wrote, yeah, he's going to be devastated. He's going to be really devastated. She said, but um, he, I know he's strong. He will take care of my kids. He'll take care of the house. He'll take care of the dogs. And he will go on and he'll have a good life. And I didn't know this until months and months and months after she had passed. And my first thought was, oh, my God, she really knows me. I mean, she really knew me at a level that I didn't even consider about myself. And I thought, that's exactly what I thought. So my wife's legacy is very important to me. She's, you know, a, a world-renowned landscape architect who, when she was in the Middle East, built islands out of the ocean, was very funny, hilariously funny. 
and nothing was more funny. And I love this little joke. She probably hates it. But when she would use the word focus, she would say, you must fuck us. <laughs> she actually had a meeting in Washington, D.C. with the mayor to talk about focus parks. That's what they were referring to, these parks that were getting all the emphasis. And they were like, we will talk this brief about focus parks. Each focus park. <laughs> she said the mayor and the staff were, the staff were dying. And she couldn't figure it out. And they go, Marie's, you need to say focus a little more round. And she realized, oh, my God. And when we said it at the funeral, everybody left. I'm in this weird state because people, when you're a widower, people are like, oh, well, you're just going to go off and get another wife. It's not like that. You are in what I call an alternative state of marriage. I'm not single. I'm not divorced. I still wear my wedding ring. Because I'm in an alternative state of marriage. And grief is a funny thing. You will move forward with it. I visit my wife every two weeks like clockwork. She had a military funeral because she was a military wife. And she's at Washington Crossing National Cemetery at where George Washington crossed the Delaware. And it's beautiful. She sends signs. This, by the way, no one is more empirical than me. That sign stuff is real. I don't mean like going to a median. I mean like... Something, and I was told this by the wife of Robin Williams, you will see something that absolutely will only mean something to you at that moment that only you and your spouse would know. And I, they happen when you have visitation dreams where you, you get very serious messages. And I don't know if it's, it's not wishful, it's real. So you have to take what you're learning in this life very seriously with your spouse, whoever your, your partner is. I remember I was giving a, a book signing here in, in upstate New York, and this lesbian couple came, and they were older. They were in their early 50s. And so she, I said, oh, is this your partner I'm signing the book for? And she goes, yes. And I go, you two married? And they go, no, we've been together for about 15 years. And I said, why aren't you getting married? And they go, well, we just thought, you know, we'll just stick together in this civil way. And I said, all right, you two come here. I said, let me explain something to you and to you. I said, one of you gets sick. That's my Philly accent kicking in. If one of you gets sick, the other one will not be able to visit her. If one of you passes away, the family will inherit everything from that woman. I said, you two need to get married. And I said, I'm telling you this from the bottom of my heart. I don't want to ever see you have to suffer the heartbreak that I had and think with regret, oh, we should have been married. Mm. And the one woman goes, well, will you come to the wedding? I go, you live five miles away from me. Yes, I'll come to the wedding. Take it very seriously. And also get life insurance. (laughs) So, you know, uh, but it's going to be hard. It's a terrible, terrible thing. What we call yours, is, yours was impacted too by the fact that pretty quickly we went into this COVID confinement. Here's where it's going to sound terrible. I'm glad my wife passed before COVID. She was on a respirator for 77 days by sheer willpower of me kicking the doctor's asses. Had this happened where she had an infection and during the period of COVID and had to go on a respirator, I've been told by friends of mine who are doctors she would have been on for one day, one day, and I would never have been able to see her. We were all with her day and night for 77 days. She was awake. She could communicate. 
you know, through, well, speech and writing and, and giving kisses and, you know, and saying I love you and all of these things and enjoying a little, you know, sponge with orange juice. I would never have had that during COVID. I would have, by the way, for the, you guys who talk, who this is the only image that exists of widowers in popular fiction. It's like John Wick, <laughs> you know, the hitman who goes around after his wife dies and kills like 50 guys or the enforcer, all these movies, even this new one, uh, you know, without remorse, every widower is a mass murderer, right? Who goes out to avenge his wife's death. And I thought, wow, am I doing this wrong? So <laughs> no, what you do is what I did, which I have an acre and a half memorial garden that I've built. And yeah. I had a small statue wet commissioned. And we have every year a Fête du Marie's where this year we'll have up to 150 people there. We're going to dance. And, you know, you have to sustain the legacy. My daughter left the room. She's, she takes this much harder than I do. Much, much harder. And so you have to, you have to live. But you, you cannot shame yourself and you cannot abandon the legacy. But I've met people who had bad relationships <laughs> and moved right on. But COVID... Oh, my God. The COVID section of the cemetery where we go is phenomenally huge. Hundreds and hundreds of veterans and their spouses passing away. I feel blessed within that respect. Sounds terrible, but look, I'm a widower. I belong to the worst club in the world. So that's a blessing. You're positive. You're a positive person. Well, I had a, I had a really good role model. <laughs> and but my wife... I mean, you have to. My wife would have been best friend. She's hilarious. Yeah. I think you being positive about it keeps her alive in a very positive way. Oh, well, she helped build this fantastic mansion, you know, and the historic marker goes to her, not to me. And uh, the funny thing is, I told my agent when I got my last book deal, I said, next book deal has to start with a biography of my wife. And it's going to be called My Wife's Spy Wife, <laughs> where no one thinks about the spouses. And they should. My mom was a military wife. She put five sons and a husband in the Navy. She's the ultimate example of a wonderful military spouse. But no one, you know, she doesn't get a lot. They don't get a lot of appreciation. But building that legacy and sustaining that legacy is very important to me. That's you know, my mother-in-law, my belle mère, she still says I'm her favorite son-in-law and that she thinks of me as a son. I'm a big part of the family. And it's all this is important if you've had a great relationship. So now, you know, I hope your husband's not listening. So <laughs> I'll have him listen to this. Thank you for sharing her with me, with us, and her recipe and her memories and the story of your life. And you know, I had a great time with you. <laughs> Thank you. One thing I do have to show you was she loved the movie Ratatouille. <laughs> and in the kitchen, I'll reverse this picture. She once, we were at some place and they had a stuffed ratatouille. And if you look <laughs> up on there, there's the giant two foot stuffed ratatouille, <laughs> stuffed rat from the movie, the Disney movie Ratatouille. Overseeing the kitchen. Overseeing the kitchen. So that's sort of Mary's <laughs> supervising. She loved that. Voila, here we are. Oh. Oh. Merci beaucoup. This is great, Malcolm. Thank you so much. And my pleasure. We'll do it again, I hope, one day. Okay. After the memoir, we'll do something really fancy. Oh, like pate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Au revoir.